Hello and welcome to this second episode of the Participation and Performance Podcast hosted by me, Dr Dan Brown. In this episode I am joined by Professor Stuart Biddle from the University of Southern Queensland in Australia. Stuart's career has spanned nearly four decades and he is considered a world-leading expert in physical activity for health and sedentary behaviour. In this episode, Stuart and I explore the topic of sedentary behaviour, including understanding what it is, what some of the barriers are to reducing it, and how he can go about overcoming these. I started by asking how it all began for Stuart and how he got into sport and exercise psychology. Well, actually, I started in physical education as an undergraduate student back in those days. That was pretty much all you could study if you were interested in sport and exercise. So you were trained to be a physical education teacher. And actually, the more I uh, studied for that, uh, the more I got interested in in what you might now call the academic disciplines, such as psychology. And I went to the United States, actually graduated for a decade ago, as you say, um, with an MSc in, in psychology of sport and exercise. So I, I have to say I got into it slightly by accident. Um, it's always quite amusing that I hardly knew the difference between sociology and psychology back then, but uh, I kind of stumbled into psychology and it looked interesting. So um, I just went on from there, really. And what was it about psychology in particular that drew you in? Well, I always had an interest in the social and behavioral sciences. I wanted to know why people did things, what motivated them. That was a particular interest of mine in the early days. Um, you know, what would be the benefits, more obviously the mental benefits of participation. Um, and although I don't do this work now, I was also interested in sport performance. So, um, yeah, I just got naturally pulled towards why people do things. That was a natural curiosity for me, I think. So you're probably most famous, uh, famously known for your work in exercise psychology and I guess sedentary behavior as well, which we'll come on to. But was there anything particular about exercise psychology that uh, attracted you or that drew you into, into that field itself? Well, actually, in the, in the early days when I first started, we never talked about exercise psychology. So back in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, it was simply called sports psychology, even though some research papers and you could give lectures on the topic of exercise psychology. We just called it sports psychology and used the term in a very generic way. But my supervisor in the United States, uh, the late Dorothy Harris, wrote a book actually in the late 1970s called Involvement in Sport. And note that it says sport in the title. But actually, if you look at the chapters, a lot of them were on exercise and health. And uh, I think she was quite a long way ahead of her time in that respect. And and almost without me knowing it, I suddenly realized there were these other domains of physical activity that that were important. And uh, that kind of led to some work I did in physical education when I returned to the UK um, around motivation of children for physical activity for health. And so it all sort of morphed into um, what we now know as exercise psychology. And that's how I, I got interested uh, in, in both the theories and the application to public health and to population levels of physical activity. So if you could sort of sum up exercise psychology, I guess, in a nutshell, as we currently understand it, how would you, how would you describe that? 
I always see it as three basic areas. You're trying to understand the psychological determinants or the correlates of participation. You know, what psychological factors might determine whether somebody chooses to, to have an active lifestyle or chooses to be a, an exerciser or indeed um, finds it very difficult to do those things. So it's the psychology of determinants and, and uh, to a certain extent the psychology of motivation for exercise. And then the second area would be more about behavior change and, and using that information from determinants to uh, help people change. So it's the intervention side of, of research and practice uh, and the psychological elements of that, of course. Um, and then the final area would be the psychological outcomes of exercise and physical activity. So the mental health side and the psychological benefits or indeed psychological harm but mainly the psychological benefits that would come from being physically active. So I, I see those as the three sort of core areas, really. Okay. And in more recent times, we've started to talk a little bit more about this notion of sedentary behavior. How does sedentary behavior differ from low levels of physical activity or fit physical inactivity? How are these sort of constructs uh, understood and how are they different? Yeah, so this area um, has developed a lot in the last decade or so, although we, we often go back to the classic Jeremy Morris London bus drivers, London bus conductors study in 1953, where um, he found that the seated bus drivers were in worse health than the active bus conductors, who with London double-decker buses and the days when you, you, they manually took tickets and, and took money and gave you tickets and so on, they were walking up and down stairs all day. So in one sense, that was the first study to look at sedentary behavior and uh, and physical activity. But I guess more recently, it, it, it's about um, uh, sitting time for sedentary behavior. And we've come to learn that as society has changed and we've become more sedentary in our occupations and and driving cars and so on, which previous generations may not have had access to, um, we, we've come to believe that sedentary behavior is an important cluster of behaviors in its own right. So it's really about sitting or uh, you, could, you could say lying down or, or reclining um, while you're still awake. So it's your typical uh, daytime activities that involve sitting, whereas physical inactivity has typically been defined as not being physically active at a certain level. Now, you could define that as national guidelines, so you're not doing you know, 30 minutes a day or whatever the guideline would state. So that's the distinction we've made. Um, now, that distinction is not wholly perfect because if you take light physical activity, which is in between moderate intensity physical activity and, and sitting, um, then there's quite a, a clear association between sitting time and light physical activity. Um, one tends to replace the other. So there is an association between sedentary and physical inactivity, and there's a kind of blurring, if you like. But um, to sum it up, we, we're interested in sitting time and, and the problems that, that uh, excessive sitting might have for your health. So if we're to talk about sedentary behavior and physical activity as almost these two different um, 
factors, if you like? Are there particular population groups that we we should be worried about or concerned about? You obviously mentioned the issue there or the initial study there of the bus bus uh, bus driver and the bus conductor. Are there other current um, sort of vocations at the moment that we should be worried about when we're thinking about sedentary behaviour and, and low levels of, of physical activity? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, whilst we all tend to sit probably excessively at certain times of the day and the most vulnerable times would be in the evening, maybe um, uh, sat in front of the television. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing if you've been very active or on your feet most of the day. So I think what, uh, what the researchers tended to look at is occupational sedentary time which has probably changed a lot over the years. So going back a a generation, you wouldn't have had so many people sitting at desks. And of course, now they're sitting at desks with computers on. And so the automation of work and the large percentage of time that we could spend sitting at a desk, sitting at a computer, means that that group might be particularly vulnerable. And so you tend to see a lot of interventions and uh, studies targeting that group. Of course, they're not the only group. You can have uh, drivers, as like we mentioned with the bus uh, drivers. You could have uh, lorry drivers. You could have taxi drivers. All of these things are basically doing their job sitting down. And um, their health might be compromised if they don't uh, do, do something about that. So, so those are the kind of things we, we need to look out for. And I'll just make mention a, a quick thing about children. Um, if, if we're asking children to sit all day at school and, and to work in that way, that might also be problematic. But, of course, kids are going to be more up and about on their feet uh, compared with adults. Do we know whether these sort of sedentary times um, can be offset by, for example, going to the gym at lunchtime or going for uh, a walking to work? Does uh, do the, the problems associated with sensory behavior, can they be offset by these sort of short bursts of, of exercise within the day? That's a really good question. It's a very topical issue for those working in this field. Uh, the bottom line is, yes, of course, physical activity and structured exercise uh, will, will be of great benefit. How much it will offset the um, problems of very prolonged sitting is still debated, but in principle, yes, it does. Um, There was a big study done where they combined data looking at whether um, high levels of physical activity offset the detrimental effects of of sitting, and and the the answer was yes, it did. Uh, But the evidence suggested that the amount of physical activity had to be pretty high So for at least 50, if not 70% of the population who don't do that kind of activity, then excessive sitting is going to be a problem for them because they just don't do enough physical activity. But of course, if you can get off your chair at periodic intervals and do some exercise or you do structured exercise in 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 a good way anyway, of course, it's going to be hugely beneficial and it may well be enough to uh, to allow you to, to to sit but we still wouldn't allow you know wouldn't want you to sit for very long periods of time and to clock up uh, you know an excessive amount of hours but um, uh, you know the exercise will definitely be be a, a huge benefit 
Okay, so in that sense, it's still encouraging for those people who work at an office job or sit at a desk uh, for most of the day that it's still encouraging for them to to get out and do some physical activity for however sort of short or long they can in the day, um, even if they still have these high levels of sedentary behavior the rest of the day. Yeah, I mean, you you might be able to see that it's fairly logical that that anybody who's um, sitting most of the day, who then does quite a bit of activity is going to be much better off than those who don't do the activity. Now, how much harm they will do themselves because they're also sitting for long periods of time, you know, is still a bit of a moot point. Uh, the evidence suggests that if you sit for very prolonged periods, you know, like a couple of hours at a time and you don't break it up, you know, that can have um, quite negative effects. So, yeah, of course, the exercise is going to be beneficial to the extent that it wipes out everything is, is still a bit a uh, bit unclear. OK, and um, we've spoken or we sort of touched on a little bit on these effects of sedentary behavior. I guess, could you kind of give some examples of some of the negative consequences of high levels of sedentary behavior? Yeah, so most of the big uh, population studies that have looked at this, where they've measured sitting time, they've measured physical activity, they've measured diet, uh, typical big health surveys like Health Survey for England and Health Survey for Scotland and um, uh, NHANE study in the United States and so on. These are big population uh, studies they've managed to link it with mortality data so you can see what people's health behaviors are and you can see over a period of time who dies and why do they die how do they die and is there any association with any of these behaviors and uh, the study i mentioned earlier where physical activity seemed to um reduce the effects of uh, sitting time at the higher levels of activity, that was in relation to mortality. So you were at higher risk of dying early if you're in the high sitting group. But of course, you were mitigated that to a certain extent by taking some exercise. Um, So mortality is one outcome. Cardiovascular outcomes or cardiometabolic outcomes related to, for example, to diabetes risk, um, a little bit about obesity, that's somewhat controversial, um, and some evidence on, on poorer mental health, musculoskeletal problems with excessive sitting. Um, so all of these have emerged. They're by no means perfectly associated, but they're all risk factors. Uh, sitting is a risk factor for all of those conditions. Okay, so clearly it's an issue that we need to consider and we need to think about and we need to try to do something about. Um, What are the main barriers uh, that we face when trying to decrease sedentary behavior, either ourselves individually or when we're trying to help other people reduce their sedentary behavior? Well, it's kind of interesting if we if we go back historically and, and look at what how people live their lives, maybe two generations ago, and uh, we weren't so worried, or at least we weren't aware of excessive sitting time. That was because they they uh, had environments and they had um, uh, opportunities to be on their feet and to be moving a bit more, whether it's at work, whether it was to get from A to B with transportation because they haven't got cars and so on and so forth. Uh, we, we you know we can surmise all of those. So that brings me to to think that the um, barriers that we currently face are very much uh, of the modern uh, 
world, which is environmental barriers where um, the physical surroundings that we're in encourage us to sit and they provide us with uh, desks and computers and and uh, cars. We have all have cars, so we, we, we have door-to-door seated transport, whereas in the past we would have walked or cycled or hopped off the bus and so on. So environmental barriers are, are, are very clear, but it's not just environmental barriers. It's not just that you're sitting at a desk and the desk is configured to be a seated desk. You've also got social barriers or social norms. You know, it, it's common courtesy when somebody uh, visits you, you offer them a seat. And, and that's fine, but the, the, you tend to find that we're expected to sit in virtually every environment uh, when sometimes a more active alternative might might be quite nice. Uh, one one example of this is a meeting I- in work. Uh, the, the expectation is you go in and you sit down. Well, could we walk and talk? Could we stand and uh, watch a presentation or something like this just to break up our sitting time? So the social norms tend to dictate um, that, that we sit down. Students come into our lectures, they sit down. Of course they do. That's what the lecture theatre is configured to do. So it's an environmental constraint and it's a social constraint. Uh, And we need to be a bit creative as to how to to reduce that barrier. And then the third barrier would be around uh, actually very much a psychological barrier of pleasure and your sort of affective or mood responses. Um, To put it simply, sitting can be very pleasurable. And so it, it's it's slightly problematic to um, expect very easy changes to people's sitting time when uh, you know they, they they want to sit and relax, and that's absolutely acceptable. Uh, when I finish this uh, podcast with you, I'll probably want to, uh, and I'm doing it standing up, by the way. <laughs> I would uh, you know be very happy to sit down and relax and, and read a book or whatever it is. That's absolutely acceptable. But, of course, we can't do that all the time. And so we need to find ways that are uh, breaking breaking that up. So those barriers are environmental, social, and I think sort of uh, psychological or affective related. Okay, so we've already spoken about some of the strategies there. So uh, having uh, standing during meetings, perhaps. Or like we are now, uh, you're standing while we're, we're talking over, over the Internet. Um, are there any strategies that have been sort of tried and, t- and tested and that have been shown to be particularly effective for breaking up uh, sedentary behavior? Yes, uh, there are. And probably the one that's been most uh, used and is probably very familiar to, to everybody are the, are the so-called standing desks. And standing desks are an example of an environmental strategy, uh, or what we call environmental restructuring. So instead of coming into your office and having no real option, if you want to work at your computer, than to sit down, we now have the option of um, moving the uh, the desk to a higher level, and we can stand and work, or we can move it down and we can sit and work, and and that's a perfect example of um, environmental restructuring, and they have been successful. There's no doubt about that. So we we finished quite a big trial um, not so long ago. It was, it was in the uh, in the UK, I was working on that trial before I left to go to Australia. And we, we reduced office workers' sitting time by just over an hour a day. That's their occupational sitting time. Uh, now, you might think, oh, an hour a day, 
doesn't sound absolutely fantastic, but um, it's probably quite significant to uh, to reduce their sitting by an hour a day, and we got some quite positive uh, outcomes uh, from that. So the desk does work, but it's not just the desk on its own. There's also evidence to suggest that people don't use those desks. Once they've had them fitted, they're a bit enthusiastic to start with, and then they forget all about it, and they're sitting down all the time. So you do need um, some self-monitoring. So you need to know how much you're sitting, and uh, that often comes as a bit of a shock to some people. So any kind of self-monitoring would be good. We, we don't have many great devices, but we have some. Um, and some of the you know, devices are now being developed to measure your sitting time. You can look at your screen time on, on your iPhone. You can look at your uh, sitting time on the latest Fitbits and, and, and what have you. Um, and of course, it can be measured more scientifically with research grade instruments. And we've used that and fed it back to participants in studies. They find that extremely informative. So in addition to self-monitoring, you can have prompts. So some kind of prompting, it can come up on your screen or it can just be a, even a card on, on, your, on your desk prompting you to stand every, every 30 minutes. You could have a timer on your, on your phone. And we found that educational um, strategies work. We, we get people into a brief workshop or an online training module and uh, that, that can help them a lot as to why they should be doing this and how they can, can do it. So, yeah, a number of strategies around uh, in the environment, around self-monitoring, around prompting and around uh, education. Some of those strategies that you mentioned there are really interesting because I noticed on your email, for example, it says there uses as a prompt to stand up. And uh, when you used to teach, you used to have those walking meetings with the students um, to encourage them to be physically active. Are there still strategies that you use in your own sort of life to help you reduce your sedentary behavior? Yeah, well, I'm glad you remember some of those ones from the past. That's great. <laughs> um, uh, yes, of course. I mean, I um, uh, so I work at home as well as uh, in my office. And in both cases, I have a standing desk. So that, that's that's fine. Uh, now, the one in my office, you could say, is a little bit pricey, so uh, not everybody would, would be able to get those. But my standing desk at home is uh, very cheap from a well-known uh, Swedish um, furniture company. And uh, I can also work uh, – actually, right now, I'm standing with my laptop on a, on a ledge um, next to the kitchen, which just by luck happens to be about the right height. So, you know, I do those manipulations. Okay, that, that's probably fairly obvious. In meetings, uh, we will stand up. Uh, not all the time, of course. I break it up. I sit, I stand, I stand, I sit. And uh, that's quite common now in our research group. Um, and I also try to uh, just get a break and, and move, move around a bit more. And one way to do that is, you know, go go and quickly fill up your, your your glass of water, or go and uh, we and we have to do that where where our office is, and uh, we go and fetch paper from the photocopier, whatever it is. Uh, nothing's uh, close to our office. We all we all move around. Now maybe that's more luck than judgment, but you know that that that's what we try to do. Um, so the main ones for me would be the desk and uh, and the meetings to uh, to break up the sitting time. Okay, that's fantastic. Um, where do you see the field going next? There's been a lot of development and progression within sort of phys uh, exercise psychology, physical activity, physical inactivity, and as we've been speaking about more recently with sedentary behavior. Where do you kind of see the field going next in this type, in this area? 
Well, I, 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 there are probably two two things I'll mention. One is, um, you know, sometimes when I, I look at this area and I think, uh, yeah, it's really interesting, and then sometimes I get a bit pessimistic thinking, you know what, some work sites are going to think I'm completely mad. Why on earth would anybody want to stand up and, uh, and work when I can sit and be perfectly comfortable and get the job done? Uh, but I'm then jolted back into uh, a more pessimistic mode when I talk to some uh, people about this who are very enthusiastic about changing the whole nature of the working environment for adults, and you could probably do the same for kids in school, by making it a much more active environment. And so you've got to be a bit creative and think, well, how can we do that? And sometimes it's about building design. Sometimes it's about... Um, working with the design of the building that you've already got. You can't change that, but but do other things. And it's not just standing desk, but create a whole culture of movement and, and uh, you know, signs on, on, uh, on lifts uh, that, that, uh, that show you where the stairs are and so on. So, I, you know, I get a bit more optimistic then that there's a lot of interest out there from companies in revolutionizing the way we work and, and getting away from this ridiculous situation of being couch potatoes for the whole day. So, so that, that's one area which I think the field could, could really make a contribution to. At a more sort of research level, um, there's a lot of talk now about 24-hour guidelines. So rather than talk about how much physical activity you do in one breath and how much sedentary behavior you should um, uh, do or avoid in another, we combine them all together. And so the 24-hour guidelines basically say that over a 24-hour period, um, your behaviors are very interchangeable. So if you stand up out of your chair, then you must be doing light physical activity. You're standing or you're moving. Um, if you stop running, i.e. your moderate to vigorous physical activity, and then you sit down, you're now doing sedentary behavior. So each behavior replaces another over the 24-hour cycle, part of which, of course, will be sleep. So our optimal health will be when we have good levels of physical activity, low levels of sedentary behavior, and optimal levels of sleep. And those are interchangeable. Um, and so this 24-hour guidelines model, which has been published in Canada, uh, we're now just about to produce the same one for children in, in Australia, um, is an interesting way to go because it, it makes you think about replacements and substitutions of behaviors rather than the behaviors in isolation. And I think that'll get us away from talking about sitting as the new smoking and as the big evil, which is a bit of a naive statement, and integrating it alongside more physical activity and, uh, and, and optimal sleep as well. Um, so so that, that's definitely a big thing for the future, I think. Amazing. That's been really, really interesting um, to talk to you about sedentary behavior and exercise psychology in general. Um, I guess just my last question, and it, it kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning of the interview about you obviously having had such an illustrious and successful career. Is there one piece of advice that you would offer students who are interested in getting into sport and exercise psychology? Whenever I'm asked a question about one piece, I always cheat and want to give more than one <laughs> piece of advice. And now, obviously, I have thought about this, and it, it is difficult to, to mention one one thing. But um, if you forgive me for, for perhaps touching on a couple of issues, so I remember when I first started, I actually did quite a lot of teaching 
in different areas of sport and exercise psychology, which were not my specialisms. I had to read up on them and be one step ahead of students and so on. But it did me a lot of good, I think, in understanding the broader aspects of the field. So I guess the moral of that story is um, don't specialise too early. I think if you're really passionate about exercise psychology, uh, also do a bit on sports psychology and vice versa. Um, I wouldn't specialise too too early because we can always learn from that that wider perspective. And if I can merge that into a sort of second but related point is I sometimes think we get too narrow in our reading of very modern literature and we forget to go back and look at some classic historical stuff. And I think it would be really good if young budding sport and exercise psychologists uh, took a little bit of time just to see how some of our theories or some of our perspectives, some of our practices emerged, what led to them, what's the little bit of history behind it. And I think we can learn from that as well. So I've cheated a little bit by mentioning a couple of things, but they're, they're probably interrelated. Yeah, thank you so much. I think they're really that's really, really good advice. Um, and so it just leads me to say thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for the invitation, Dan. Thoroughly yeah, it's been it. great to gain your insight on this area. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you for joining us today. I hope that you join me again next time for the next episode of the Participation and Performance Podcast. This episode was created, presented and produced by Dr. Dan Brown with production assistance from Tom Langston. The music used in this episode is Unity by Kevin McLeod. All copyright information can be found in the show notes. <laughs>